This afternoon, we are reading through the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Hear the word of God. Starting at verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. This is pretty awful stuff, but this description, this parody of justice, as terrible as it was, is not like one of those tragedies from Shakespeare. You know the ones where the main character is ruined because of some character flaw or some force beyond their control. This horrible event happening to Jesus is happening precisely because Jesus wants to, hap- wants to have it happen this way. Jesus is perfect, and he is in perfect control. All of this is a go- going according to how he wants it to go and how he has planned it to go. Do you remember back in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus describes in exact detail how this horrible parody of justice will be carried out? He describes how he will be first be delivered to the Jews and then turned over to the Gentiles, and that he will be first humiliated and then tortured and then executed. From Mark 10, verse 33 and 34, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus told his disciples of what was to come to give them faith. And when, he, when we read this passage, he's telling us this, to give us faith. Maybe we can remember to keep his words before us and to remember what he said when we read this awful story. Maybe we can try to keep his words before us and remember that he, what he, is, that he is going through this parody of justice so that we might be brought to salvation. That he consented to be handed over to evil men so that we might be placed in the hands of our good and loving God. 
Maybe remember that Jesus gladly endures this humiliation, this torture, and this execution for us so that he would be raised to glory and that we would be able to return to him. And when we go through rough times, maybe we can remember that Jesus has placed us into the hands of our good and loving God, that even though there will be times when it seems like we're being handed over to our enemies, we're always in the hands of our good and loving Father, for his Son has handed us over to him, and no one can take us out of his hands. Maybe we can remember Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Continuing now at verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. My initial reaction to this passage is to look away, to not allow these passages to be visible in my mind because they are so brutal. I'm embarrassed by the entertainment chosen by this company of perhaps 600 Roman soldiers. I want to move on quickly from their cruel and humiliating treatment of Jesus. There is something so uncomfortable about being a spectator to this horrible scene. Here in the praetorium stands Jesus, in truth, the king of kings, who deserves the most resplendent robe made of the finest fabrics, trimmed with the most exquisite of details. And instead, he's made to wear a faded, worn thin, cast-off rag of a garment. He should be wearing a majestic crown designed by the most skillful artist, crafted with the purest of gold inlaid with priceless stones, not a painful, twisted crown of thorns. Jesus is worthy of being hailed by all of creation, praised by everyone and everything that exists. Instead, he receives the soldiers' contemptuous shouts of ridicule and sarcastic tribute. Jesus should be holding a mighty scepter, a sign of his authority and sovereignty, rather than being struck over and over on his head with a staff. Jesus the king, whose body should be anointed with the purest oil, is anointed by the soldier's spittle. Standing before the mocking Roman soldiers, Jesus, falsely accused, condemned to die on a cross, verbally and physically attacked, does not respond. 
He says nothing. He is silent. He endures all of their indignities, their humiliation, their ridicule, their scorn. He doesn't raise his voice or his fists to defend himself. I want to judge the soldiers for their despicable treatment of Jesus, but then I have to consider how I have treated Jesus. He is here because of me. He is beaten for the times I've turned my eyes away from injustice, held a grudge, or failed to show compassion. I mock and insult him each time I choose self-indulgence over self-control. I spit on him by being content to receive his forgiveness without giving him my complete devotion. Do I really want to skim through these five verses so quickly because of their brutality or because they reveal I have more in common with the soldiers than I care to acknowledge? They finish mocking him, the purple robe is removed, and his own clothes are returned to his battered body. Then they let him out to crucify him. Jesus dies for our sins. But Jesus does more than this. He takes all the punishment that comes with sin. And a part of that punishment is shame. Jesus assumes our guilt and suffers our shame. Jesus is humiliated and shamed so that we don't have to be. Romans 10:11 says, anyone who believes in me will never be put to shame. To be given the incredible gifts of forgiveness and mercy, to escape the penalty of death that I so deserve for my sin, is quite something. To also be spared the humiliation and shame that accompanies my sin, that, that is a marvel. Because of Jesus' willingness to submit fully to the Father's will and take the humiliation and suffering that we deserve, we will wear robes of righteousness. We will wear crowns of life. We are embraced by the Father and given scepters as sons and daughters of the Most High. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit. By his wounds, we are healed. Continuing in Mark. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And when they forced him to carry the cross, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. And it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who, hurled, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those crucified with him also heaped insults at him. Today I have a question, and I hope to answer it by the time we are done here. The question is, how can a loving, righteous, pure, perfect God allow sinful, wicked, evil, corrupt men into heaven? The simple answer, Jesus. But you, me, whether we're 8 or 80, we all deserve to be punished by God because of our sin. We were all created with one problem, and only one problem. It is sin. It is our sin problem that leads us to the most vile of actions. It is our sinful nature that leads us to break God's commands. If we look back at Exodus 20, we can see God's commands. In verse 3, God says, You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever put anything before God? That's called an idol. In verse 7, he says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Verse 12, Honor your mother and father. Have you ever been disrespectful to your parents? Verse 13, You shall not murder. I won't ask about that one. Verse 14, You shall not commit adultery. Jesus understood this, that if you lust after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery. In verse 15, he says, Do not steal. Have you stolen? Verse 16, do not covet your neighbor's things. Have you coveted your neighbor's things? And God says, do not lie. Have you lied? If you're anything like me, you have a sin problem and you have broken these commands. And because we have broken these commands, we deserve to be punished. We cannot stand before a holy, righteous, good, perfect God. So according to this list, if you're anything like me, you would then be described as an idol worshiper, someone who uses God's name in vain, a disobedient child, a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, a liar, and a coveter. If this is true, how can you stand before the holy and righteous God? The problem is, is that we cannot. We are helpless and are in need of saving. Romans chapter 2 says this, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and praise for everyone who does good. So what is our remedy? How can we be restored before the Lord? How can we stand before a holy and righteous God? The solution is that Jesus died in our place that we may stand before God. And not only did he die physically, but he, God's wrath was also poured out on him while he was on the cross. So Jesus, instead of us, was on the cross. He became our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, And God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, you and me, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Someone had to die and to be punished because of our sin. 
and that someone was Jesus when he was on the cross. Jesus willingly, lovingly, decidingly took our rightful place. He became our sacrificial lamb, the satisfaction for our sin debt, our substitute, and the chief cupbearer. In exchange for God putting our sin and God's wrath on Jesus, who being perfect, God, in place of that, offers us his righteousness so we may stand freely forgiven, that we may be cleansed, that we may be washed like snow, justified in God's sight, new creations, and to be made alive. What a great God we serve. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 says this, Because he poured out his life unto death, Jesus, he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for the transgressors. That's you and that's me. Truly, Jesus has borne our sin and can make those who faith in him righteous. And yet, on the other hand, your sin will remain your sin, your problem, if you do not put your faith in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and repent from your sins. So on this Good Friday, we look to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who paid the ultimate price and showed the extent of his great love for us when he was nailed to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Continuing with verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. And when the centurion who was there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, in Salome, in Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up from, with him up from Jerusalem were also there. But darkness came at noon. In the first moments of creation, the earth was formless and empty, and there was darkness. And God said, let there be light. And he saw that it was good. And with Jesus' impending death, the world, particularly the world around Jerusalem, reverted to the darkness. They were deprived of this good light. Jesus himself, the light of the world, was about to die, and that light was extinguished. The Creator God had separated light from dark in the very beginning. And now, at the time of Jesus' death, they're merged again together. Although we want to experience Sunday, it's good to stay for a while in the darkness and contemplate. 
Those who persecuted Jesus or abandoned him, or even those who stood by him, did not know what was coming next, and they were left in the confusion of the darkness that came at noontime. There were many beliefs that made their way into the early church, and one of them denied Jesus' humanity. Um, but what, along, what, in addition to birth, is as human as death? Um, in his dying hours, Jesus experienced abandonment, an emotional and spiritual suffering that must have been, in some ways, worse than the physical suffering. Um, his cry is from the opening words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And forsaken in English is defi defined as to turn away from entirely and is complete abandonment. So it's hard to understand, particularly from one's own father, this sense of abandonment. My father was killed when I was not even two years old. And I grew up not with a sense of abandonment, but with a big void in my life. But I had a good friend at work, and we talked about this, and his father died when he was nine. And he certainly felt abandoned by his father. And it was something that it took him a lifetime to overcome. And here's Jesus suffering that same thing. Uh, a relationship is about to be severed. And um, that would be pretty hard to take. In Psalm 22, there is a whole series of things that talks about the suffering of Jesus, and it's prophetic. And there's a couple of them that catch my eye that really relate. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat at me. And who among us has not experienced emotions like this? Um, I saw a recent photo of the Ukrainian President Zelensky, and it was taken a couple of days ago, and it was side by side with a photo of him that was taken before the invasion. And man, has that man changed. He is not the same man anymore. His face is so drawn. He looks so persecuted. And I, I think of Jesus in those moments on Calvary what happened to him physically and emotionally. He, I'm sure by the time that ordeal was done, he didn't look the way he did the night before. But despite all this, Psalm 22 is a prayer of ultimate vindication of, of going beyond suffering, of the light overcoming the darkness. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. That's Jesus' prayer as he invokes the psalmist's words let none of us, let none of this be in vain. May God's purpose be fulfilled in Jesus' obedient acceptance of his ordeal. He doesn't have to recite the whole psalm because those who knew it understood what he was saying from the very beginning, even though many uh, misinterpreted it. Now, Jesus, I believe, had been preparing for his death for a long time, at least for the last three years. And the question today is, how prepared are we for ours? Do we anticipate it soon, or is it way off the radar somewhere in some remote future time? But it's a valid question. I think of those who face, face death today with no hope, 
with no sense of vindication and who look forward to nothing but the dark abyss. And I think of those who fear death that may come at any moment in the form of a bomb in the night or a random machine gun bullet. So let us pray for their redemption, that they also will be brought into the light of Jesus, receiving the same forgiveness and hope that Jesus gave to one of those who was crucified with him. And while enduring his suffering, Jesus is true to his mission. He refuses the mind-numbing altered wine that was supposed to make this a more easy ordeal. He wanted to experience everything that was on his plate. Uh, and so ironic for the man who at Cana turned water into the finest wine and is now being given the dregs to drink. And I think that Mark's gospel implies at the end that he finally did drink it, but only at that last moment when he summoned up the strength to loudly cry out as he died. The end of his ministry, his final witness, a cry of triumph. Light and transparency overcome the darkness as the temple curtain is ripped in two. The Holy of Holies, God's dwelling place with access reserved only for the high priest, is open. And God is accessible and not hidden from his people. At the end of his life, abandoned by those, his close followers, the men he had selected to share his ministry, a very Jesus-like thing occurs. Mark tells us that it's not his inner circle who attend him as he dies. It's those who are discounted by society as unworthy or subservient and the ones who have no status among the religious leaders. The Roman centurion who declares that Jesus certainly must be the son of God. And the women who come to minister to him and witness his suffering. Women who had been there for him throughout his ministry, who gave their resources to support him. Women who don't get much recognition in the gospel, but who have faithfully served along the way until this end, exhibiting the courage that the men lacked. Mark makes it clear that they are present to serve and to give witness. The final verse of Psalm 20 says, They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. A, wit a witness to the victory of light over darkness and hope over abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered these moments of abandonment by God, his Father, so that we will never have to suffer the same thing. This is our hope, our certainty on this day. Now the concluding verses of Mark 15. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We come now to the end of the story, or at least it must have felt like that to those who were there that day. Jesus has died. Mark makes a point of assuring his readers that there is no doubt about that fact. 
He records Pilate's demand for confirmation of Jesus' death from a centurion who had been there at the crucifixion. It is confirmed. Jesus is dead. The earthly life of the man who, had, who many had hoped would bring freedom and redemption has ended. His lifeless body is left hanging on the cross where he was killed. With only a few hours until sunset, the beginning of the Sabbath, when no work would be permitted, a man named Joseph of Arimathea took it upon himself to take care of Jesus' body. Executed criminals' bodies were generally left unburied, eventually often discarded in a pauper's field. But Mark tells us that Joseph went boldly to the governor to ask for Jesus' body. It took great courage to go with a request like this. Very unusual. So who is this man who would do such a thing? Mark only tells us two things about him. First, that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin, which was one of the groups who had been among those calling for Jesus' execution. Second, that Joseph was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. I like how Eugene Peterson translates that description in his uh, version of the Bible, The Message. He says, he was one who lived expectantly on the lookout for the kingdom of God. Interesting. This story is recounted in all four of the Gospels, and we learn from those other accounts that Joseph was wealthy, he was a good and upright man, and that he had actually not consented to the council's call for crucifixion, and that actually he was a disciple of Jesus, a follower, but secretly because he feared the Jews. And so, as one who lived expectantly on the lookout for the kingdom of God, Joseph must have found Jesus' death to be devastating. The shock, the confusion, the sorrow, it just must have been overwhelming for him. The dashed hopes, the uncertainty, the loss. This is not how Joseph or any of Jesus' followers expected this story to end. But this one who had been so fearful while Jesus was alive now acts incredibly boldly so that Jesus' body would be safely entombed before the Sabbath began. And his actions would then set the stage for the grand act that would come next, though Joseph had no idea of that. What moved Joseph from being a secret follower of Jesus to one who has the courage to publicly take responsibility for caring for Jesus' tortured body. Despite the time constraints and the great personal cost it would have for him. What gave him the emotional strength to take Jesus' body down off the cross, to obtain a linen cloth and wrap him in it, to transport his body to a tomb that he owned, and then to roll a stone in front of it to seal the grave. He was under no obligation to do any of these things. But this, this is the power of the crucifixion. Joseph had seen the incredible cost that Jesus paid that day. Though he probably didn't fully understand it, he knew that Jesus' sacrifice was enormous. 
And in the face of that, he just had to respond. He had to demonstrate his love and gratitude and devotion to Jesus in some way. And this is why we take time on this Good Friday to pause and to contemplate the crucifixion. Because it's when we come face to face with the reality of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, of the cost he paid, of the enormity of the brutality that he endured for us so that we could be reconciled to God, that we too then are stirred to respond. As we walk through the hours between now and Sunday morning, this passage challenges me to take some time to contemplate the cost of the cross and to consider my own response anew. To wonder if Christ might be calling me out of my deep, deep gratitude to him to places where I might act more boldly, where I might more publicly demonstrate my devotion to him. Not out of obligation, but out of deep, deep gratitude. Amen.